0: everybody. If I can bring us back together, that'd be fabulous. The Lord be with you. My name is Troy. I'm happy to be one of the pastors here. Glad you're with us. I am going to do my best to follow Denise and her energy and her charisma um, if you need to close your eyes and pretend that it's Denise up here instead of me, I completely understand. Um, hey, remember with me, uh, for a couple minutes here, remember with me this classic film. We tell a story about a man who's from a long line of military leaders. Going all the way back to the American Revolutionary War. And this man finds himself as a platoon leader in Vietnam. And in an ambush, he gets really injured. His legs get injured. And he's rescued by an unlikely soldier who has a really unique gift for running. (laughs) This man eventually has to have his legs amputated. puts him in a really deep, dark depression for a long time. Um, Eventually, this main character reunites with this unique soldier, and they become friends, they become business partners, they run a shrimping boat together, they make loads of money. Eventually, this main character, he invests some of his money in a fledgling company called Apple Computers, and he's able to buy himself, near the end of the film, prosthetic legs made of titanium alloy. The same stuff they use on the space shuttle. Remember this great film? We know it as (laughs) Lieutenant Dan. How about this film? Really classic historical musical. It's about a guy who is just, he's in the earliest days of our country and he's just finished college. He finished college in two years. Anybody who asks him, how in the world did you do that? He has a very simple piece of advice. Talk less, smile more. He becomes a soldier. He enters into the American Revolutionary War, fighting for the continental side. And he's a very successful soldier, even though he's having an affair with a British officer's wife. Comes out of the war... Very successful, practicing law. He starts gaining political influence. He runs for president. He loses to Thomas Jefferson, becomes the vice president. And in his disappointment, he challenges another nobody's ever heard of political uh, player to a duel. He wins the duel. And then it seals his historical fate forever and his reputation. We know this wonderful hit musical as Burr. Titles matter. Titles matter. The way that we title things shines the light on particular characters. It makes certain dialogues stand out more. It focuses us. It means for us that it, it prioritizes what we focus on. Titles centralize what a story is all about. Consider this story. A man had two sons. And the youngest of the sons came to this man and said, I would like to have my share of the family estate. And so the father gives to this son his share, and that son leaves and moves to a different country. Things seem to be going okay for a little while, but he's quickly burning through all of his money. And then there's a famine, and he finds himself in a bad way. He gets a crummy job. And uh, he's barely getting by. When he comes to his senses and he says, what am I doing? Why don't I just go back? Because even if I have to be a servant, it's got to be better than what's going on right now. And so he gets up and he starts walking. And the entire way he's headed home, he's rehearsing what he's going to say to his father when he gets there. We know this story as... The parable of the prodigal son. The parable of the lost son. And the story continues. And even with that title, what it does for us is it continues to draw our attention back to one particular character. The younger son. Right? Titles matter. Throughout history images of this particular story of the parable of the prodigal son. They do something similar to titles. They focus our gaze. They direct our attention in very specific ways. give a couple examples? Uh, Leonello Spada, in his painting, directs our attention in a particular way. Many Eastern Orthodox paintings and iconography, they direct our attention in very particular, specific ways. Even Rembrandt's famous painting of this scene, it does that. It directs our attention in particular ways. I'm going to come back to this image in a couple of minutes. I would like today, I'd like to encourage us to widen our gaze and to let our attentions be drawn beyond this one character of the younger son. Because the title that we assign to this story, I'm not sure that it's the best one, or maybe more, less critically. Uh, I think the title that we give to this story, the parable of the prodigal son, that it too narrowly focuses our attention. And so today what I want to do, this is one of the, uh, the, the verses that's assigned in the lectionary, which is a collection of verses that churches all around the world just submit themselves to, and they say we're going to focus on these verses today. This is one of the batches of verses that we're looking at and that have been given to us for today. And what I want to encourage us to do is to say maybe we can focus on the second half of this story and ask ourselves if we title the story differently How does it help us look at the story with new and fresh eyes? So I want to put in front of you two titles for this story, two alternative titles, and see what we might learn if we call this story something else. So consider first this. Maybe this story could be called this, The Parable of the Faithful Yet Self-Righteous Son. I want to go back to the very beginning of the chapter Um, So if you have a Blue Shed Bible, it's on page 946. It's the very beginning. We're in Luke chapter 15. And I want to go to the very beginning because this helps to set the stage and the context for why did this story get told in the first place. What happens here, we find is this. It says at the very beginning, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around... Um, uh, to, to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man, Jesus, he welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus told them this parable. So then what follows is Jesus tells a trio of parables, a trio of stories. He tells a story about a shepherd and some sheep and a shepherd who will leave 99 sheep to go find the one lost sheep. And then he tells a story about a coin that gets lost and a woman who will search all over to find it. And then he tells this story that we're focusing on, this story about a man and his two sons. Now, these opening verses, they help us to understand why Jesus was talking in parables, why he decided to say these things. Because some religious leaders, they were having trouble making sense of Jesus keeping this kind of company. It bothered them that Jesus was welcoming and eating with people who in their perspective were undeserving. So that's the starting point. That's the catapult for Jesus' stories. So he tells the story about a family that has a younger son and a father and an older son. And this older son is in the fields. He's faithfully working when the younger son comes home. And the text tells us, if you look at it, says that he, the older son overhears there's music and dancing. The older son didn't know there was a party. He didn't know there was something to celebrate. No one bothered to come and get him. He's in the field He's being responsible. He's doing what he's supposed to do. He's getting the job done. And I have a feeling that even this detail that would have spoke loudly to these Pharisees and to these teachers of the law who would have identified themselves in that particular older brother character. And I have a feeling a lot of us in this room identify ourselves with that older brother character. Throughout lots of history, when people are interpreting this parable by Jesus, they focused on this particular character, the older brother. You can go all the way back to the beginning of early church history. Cyril of Jerusalem, my boy John Chrysostom, early, early church fathers, fast forward all the way to modern voices, Henri Nouwen, uh, Pope Benedict XVI, they're all focusing on this older son as the nexus of the story because they identify that in this parable, something is being named and exposed. Something is being talked about that connects with many of us. How many of us, like this older son, We're focused on getting the job done, on doing the responsible thing, that we don't notice that there's good news to be celebrated all around us. How many of us have chosen, like in the Mary and Martha story, to be busy instead of present with what God wants us to see? As the story keeps going, the older brother, he, doesn't go, he overhears the party, but he doesn't go directly to the father to figure out what's going on, which is in direct contrast to the younger son. When he comes home, he goes directly to the father, but the older son doesn't. He goes and asks the servant, and then when he finds out what's going on, he refuses. It says he gets angry. He refuses to go in and join. And doesn't that sound a lot like these religious leaders at the beginning of the story? These religious leaders who instead of asking Jesus directly about his social practices, or better yet, instead of joining in on the conversations, instead of joining in on the meals with these people who are curious, with these people who are attracted to the welcoming presence that's right in front of them, instead of doing these things, these religious leaders mutter to themselves they sit off on their own they increasingly grow angry notice notice how the older brother talks about himself when he finally addresses the father in verse 29 Uh, Says the older brother, he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. I've been slaving, he says. I didn't disobey your orders. This older brother doesn't see himself as a son. It's he sees himself as a slave. He sees himself as somebody who's required to fulfill orders. He sees himself as a servant. I can't help but wonder if if the religious leaders, they needed to hear this as much as anything. That these religious leaders didn't need to be reminded that they are more than what they do for God. That they are more than their strict adherence to this vast array of commandments. That they're more than machines designed to memorize the Torah. They're more than automatons uh, who are supposed to never break any rules. That they are more than religious slaves. Did the son, this older son, and did the religious leaders, did they, did they need a shift in their identity? And I wonder if some of us need a shift in the ways that we see ourselves in relationship to the Father. And then finally, the the older brother, he starts ranting to the father against the younger son. And he refuses to even acknowledge the younger son as his brother. He says this, he calls him this son of yours. This son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes. So here's the older brother. He's gaining a head of steam as he seethes to the father. And like many who start getting stuff off of their chests, there's this moment of exaggeration where we exaggerate the misgivings and the shortcomings of the other. The older brother hasn't yet had a conversation with the younger son. He doesn't know what has been going on. He doesn't understand the circumstances, but he is already assuming the worst. The text doesn't tell us explicitly that the older son had anything to do with prostitutes. It doesn't matter. The older son is filling in the gaps. He's trumping up the story. He's enhancing it. And the religious leaders, they will eventually do the very same thing with Jesus. They will exaggerate claims against him. They will trump up and plump up stories to make him look even worse. And some of us, some of us when feeling left out or disrespected or unrecognized, We'll build up the misgivings of other people. We'll exaggerate a story to make somebody else appear worse. All in an attempt to emphasize how undeserving that other person is, but really, really more likely in an attempt to draw the attention back to ourselves, to why we are deserving of recognition, why we are deserving of better treatment. The parable of the faithful yet self-righteous son I mentioned to you that this is given to us as something to talk about on a Sunday. And I'll be honest, I did not want to talk about this story. Initially, I didn't want to talk about it because it's so familiar. It's really hard to talk about a familiar story in a new way. And I felt insecure about having any sort of new insight as it related to this story. And so I felt real resistance to this. And as I've sat with this longer, I have realized there's something much deeper that I feel, there's much deeper resistance to this story. And that is because I am a very faithful and a very self-righteous son. I'm really good at working in the field. I'm really good at being responsible. I'm really good at just getting the job done. I'm good at not asking for anything else. But I'm also really good I'm really good at feeling slighted. I'm really good at feeling like, I deserve that with that other person, God. What about me? I'm really good at thinking highly of myself and really lowly of other people. I'm a really faithful and self-righteous son. And I don't want to face that. I don't want to admit that. I don't want to name that out loud. I think I just did though, didn't I? Part of Jesus's original audience, it did include younger sons. It did include people that needed to be called home by a welcoming presence. But part of that audience, it also included faithful and self-righteous siblings. It included people who needed truth reflected back to them so that they had the opportunity to come and to join the celebration of the lost being found. Let's go to that Rembrandt painting again. I love in this scene, if you notice, it's sort of in that upper left corner, there's that shadowy figure. Commonly, that's just understood. That's the older son just sort of lurking. But what I find is the most fascinating and imaginative part of this painting is that Rembrandt places the religious leaders right in the middle of the scene, the bros on the right. He places the religious leaders in the middle of the scene. I think he's emphasizing that Jesus was speaking directly to these kinds of people in the original telling. One theologian claims that this story, this story isn't so much an appeal to sinners. This is an appeal to the hard-hearted righteous among us. It's, It's an appeal to the faithful being begged to come in and share in the joy of those coming home. I think this lent some of us Some of us probably need to confess that while we have been faithful, we have also been self righteous and we've been judgmental and we've slowly over time grown bitter and angry. So that's one title the parable of the faithful yet self righteous son. Here's another title to consider. Maybe this story could be called the parable of the generous and welcoming father. And most likely, this is the central emphasis of what Jesus is trying to get across to people. Remember the critique that Jesus welcomes sinners. He eats with disrespectful people. This generosity and this welcoming spirit of Jesus is suspect. And Jesus doesn't even try to argue Or to defend himself. He emphasizes that it's true by telling these stories. And more than that, he stresses how generous and welcome Jesus actually is. By including the older son in the story. By seeking to draw in these religious leaders into the generosity and the welcoming embrace of God. We've seen how the older son reacts to what the father is doing. Notice how the father responds to the older son. In verse 28, right after we learn that the older son gets angry and he refuses to join the party, we read these words. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Just as the father ran to the younger son, the father goes out to the older one. He doesn't just shrug his shoulders and let his son sulk in the fields. He goes out and he pleads with him. He demonstrates his generosity and his welcoming spirit, even with the older son, pleading, come and join us. Don't miss out on the party. And then a few verses later, after the older son has complained about all of his unfair treatment, The father uses this intimate relational language to try and reorient the older son. And he says, older brother, my son, the father says, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. I imagine the father here is trying to emphasize, my son, there is plenty to go around. My blessing, the one, doesn't take away from you. No one will run short. Everything I have is yours. I love the words that uh, Rodney Clapp, he gives these words to the father when he's talking to the son. He gives him these words. This is not your younger brother's party as much as it is my party party that I throw for many. I am on the lookout for all of my loved ones near or far. I think there's a bit of religious leader in all of us because we have a hard time imagining certain people being generously welcomed in by God because of those darn political beliefs or their, their previous law-breaking decisions because of their sexual habits, because they support those particular social movements, because of their religious upbringings or the ways that they currently practice religion and on and on and on and on the categories we make up. I believe this parable in part I believe it intended to stress two things to all of us who simply cannot get our heads and hearts wrapped around this generous and welcoming God. First, I think it's meant to stress, don't miss out on the party. Sure, you can stand off to the side and you can huff and puff and you can mutter amongst yourselves And you can grow increasingly angry, and increasingly bitter, and increasingly judgmental. But the better choice, the better choice is to receive the welcome of the Father given to you. You are welcomed. Receive that welcome. Come and celebrate and be glad. Because this God is in the business of finding what was previously lost and bringing what was previously dead back to life. Don't miss out on the party. And I think second, don't stress about the guest list. This is the Father's party. You have been invited to join and to feast. Not to stress about seating arrangements. Not to assign yourself as the bouncer at the door. You have been invited to feast. Don't stress about the guest list. Let me leave you here. There's this wonderful old hymn called There's a Wideness in God's Mercy. Anybody know this hymn? We... I don't know of any, yeah, very good. The six of us. Very good. It's from the 1880s, written about the mid-1800s. A man named Frederick Faber. You would know some of his other stuff too. It's a wonderful text. It's so generous. It's so expansive. Uh, but in most hymnals, there's one verse that gets left out. And I want to leave you with this, these words. The hymn says this, but we make his love too narrow by false limits of our own. And we magnify his strictness with a zeal he will not own. Isn't that amazing? I'm assuming that every one of us every one of us needs to confess that that we have narrowed the limits of God's love. And every one of us has too often imagined God in ways that he would simply not own. Let's never forget that the generous and welcoming Father invites all who are lost whether you are returning from a life of self-righteous living or a life of self-indulgent living, the Father invites all home and all are invited to enter into everything that he has. To the glory of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.